Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. I'm here with Tom Tobin, our editor. It is May 26th, the end of a school year in Florida. We have graduations going on, yearbooks being signed, and people are getting ready to go into the Memorial Day weekend and on into summer. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing great, Jeff. Yes, it is a relaxing time of year, uh, but I guess another theme this week could be uh, we live in uncertain times. Uh, up in Tallahassee, uh, we have two two big big bills: the education bill uh, and the uh, budget bill. Both uh, are in limbo until the governor decides. Until the governor receives the educate uh, the uh, budget bill, uh, and until he decides whether to approve or veto uh, those bills. Uh, and you did a story this week that will appear over the weekend on TampaBay.com uh, about the impact of all this uncertainty on school district finances. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. We have school district people who are the ones who are not going home for spring break or for summer break. They get to continue working on the budget over the summer. And right now they're feeling on edge. They don't know exactly what to do in planning their budgets. They have this July deadline to have their first public hearings with their tax rates set as the maximum tax rate that they're going to charge to the families, the property owners, and they don't know what it's going to be exactly. They're hoping that what they've been seeing in the bills that they've been urging the governor to veto by and large is the worst case scenario. It's got that, as we've talked about before, slight decrease in base student allocation and slight increase in per student funding overall. And what they're calling it is a basic growth budget which means that school districts that are growing will see a little bit more money. School districts that are not growing won't. Our local school district, Pinellas County, is expecting nearly a $500,000 decrease because it's a shrinking district, whereas Pasco County is expecting close to $12 million more because they're going to have more students. The question is whether it's going to meet the needs that they have beyond those existing students. If they're building new schools and dealing with inflationary costs of insurance, utilities, plus trying to give raises and things of that nature. A lot of these people are saying it's not enough money. You know, uh, one interesting fact that jumped out at me in your story is, is just take Pinellas as, a, as an example. Uh, the finance director there compared the per-student funding overall uh, that is proposed in the new budget to the one uh, 10 years ago, and it's, uh, it's like uh, almost 2% less today than it was uh, 10 years ago, the per-student funding. And he's, you know, saying, how do we how do we live on this? That's in constant dollars, though, right, Tom? We have to make sure he was talking about if you would take the 10 years ago amount and raise it up to what it would be worth today by using, you know, the calculations that finance people use. And, and it's true that, that that's been the high watermark, 2007, 2008, for a long time has been that level that people have been hoping to get back towards. Well, today, just to use the numbers that you used, like in Pinellas, the uh, in in today's dollars, that that two thousand seven two thousand eight number would be uh, about eighty three hundred dollars per student. Um, uh, but where it is actually in the state budget is 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 about seventy two hundred dollars. 
So that's what he's talking about. Exactly. And and it's not necessarily enough for everybody to keep pace with growth because everything hasn't just stayed still. Costs of lots of things have gone up. Now, it's really interesting, though, because not everybody is as forgiving, I guess, as the school district people are. You have some people, even school board members, who are saying, you know, it's taxpayer dollars, and we don't always get a raise every year. And you're getting basically what amounts to a flat budget from last year to this year. Why do you need so much more? Find something to cut. There's bloat somewhere. And live within your means. We understand that you're saying there's inflationary things going on, but you can't tell me that there's nothing that you're doing that can't be done without. And there, there's an undercurrent of that as well, saying, you know, live within your means. And it did come from the House as well. So it's not just a message that's coming from taxpayers. It's coming from a lot of elected representatives who are saying, you get a certain amount of money and we want to focus on certain things that you haven't done, which is improve uh, the lowest performing schools. They Some of these schools, as we've talked about in the Schools of Hope plan that the House created, have been low performing for years, getting Fs and Ds in the state rating system for five years. And nothing has been done to fix them. And so the state wants to direct money towards them rather than just letting school districts put more money into whatever they see fit. That was that was the theme that uh, struck me in your story. And it's one that you brought home for me as a reader uh, through, you know, I guess it's been obvious this whole time as the legislature has come, uh, came down the uh, came down the final weeks there. But this is a way for them to to basically say to the uh, school district, look, we, we want to handle this, some of this our, our own way. And, and as a legislature, do things that affect, that directly affect uh, school district budgets. We want to say where, where a lot of this money goes, and it's millions, it's tens of millions, hundreds of millions actually, and not let you, not let you the school districts, put it in the general fund. We want to, we want to tailor it to to what we what, what, what we want to see on the local level. And that's the legislature uh, speaking with one voice on that. Well, exactly one voice. It sometimes it seems because I'm not sure that all the lawmakers agree with what is being presented. It seems like it's a priority of one voice. Right, I guess I guess one voice meeting the House and the Senate. But you're right. There are many uh, there are many voices, uh, individual voices that that uh, don't agree with this approach. So it's going to be really interesting to see when the governor comes through with the bills, what he does with them. And and the school districts have been sending out messages saying, hey, support this, write to the governor, tell him what to, what you think they ought to do. I've seen it in superintendents sending messages to their staff saying, I'm not going to tell you what to say, but please let him know what you think. I've seen the school board association telling their school board members the same. On the other hand, we've seen the charter school groups and the school choice groups sending a same kind of message to their supporters and the parents in their groups. Don't let him act without knowing what you think. I was going to say, you, you wrote this week on the Gradebook blog about a couple of, uh, from we heard from a couple of quarters, the Central Florida Public Schools, uh, uh, Public School Boards Coalition, thanks, sorry about that, and also Agriculture Commissioner Adam Putnam, uh, both who were urging the governor to, to veto and uh, but and both of those groups, it wasn't so much the content of the the, the bill that that bothered them, but it was the, the 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 vetting process, the way in which the bills came about and were voted on. Uh, everyone saying that was out of the the public eye. Uh, so I thought that that was a lot of people are coming at it from that point of view as well. Yeah, and there's one other point of view that keeps coming up too, and this was part of the political calculus that came out of the house. 
the people who support the Gardner scholarships for students with disabilities, there's an additional $30 million within House Bill 7069, that conforming bill, that would expand the program. There's already money in the existing budget for the current program, but they're conflating the two and they're trying to urge people not to kill the program that's helping disabled kids. So there's a lot of things going on. There's still a lot of moving parts. We've talked about this so much and 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 right now what we're doing is just, you know, shadow boxing because we don't know what the governor is going to do. We're just we're just waiting to see what he does and everybody's trying to stake their claim hoping that he'll listen to them in the end. Uh, so, Jeff, you uh, also wrote this week on the blog about um, a new report uh, that was out that uh, weighed in on uh, Florida's uh, pre-K programs. Uh, the uh, report was good on one hand and not so good on another. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what, you f- what you found in that report? The National Institute for Early Education Research out of Rutgers University has been putting out reports for ever since Florida started its pre-K program which is now going on 15 years. And the results have almost always been the same, that Florida's program is among the top in the country when it comes to percentage of eligible students served. They are really trying to, in Florida, bring in as many kids as possible and get them the early education that helps them provide a base for kindergarten so that they're more ready when they get there. On the other hand, Florida is consistently among the bottom states when it comes to funding that program per student, less than half of what the national average is, and below states that you would think of that might possibly be worse than us, states like Alabama, which also is meeting more of the Institute's standards, what they consider to be benchmarks for a high-quality program. I don't think many people would have thought of Alabama, Louisiana, and North Carolina as providing a better education than Florida, or at least that's not what they want. And so you have this sort of dichotomy, a high accessibility program versus a low funded program. The the head of the state's early learning office sent me a note saying that, you know, hey, we are trying to provide a quality program at a lesser cost. We're trying to not you know, break the bank over this program. And we don't necessarily agree with the Institute or even their benchmarks, which haven't really been proven to yield a high quality student at the end of, I guess, pre-K and, and entering into kindergarten as, as what some people might say. So, so that's been going on. Yeah, he, I guess he's saying that, uh, you know, the fact that we have access to so many kids is, is, a, is a really good thing. But the the director of the organization that did the report was basically saying, you know, he said offering a low quality program to many children is not an effective strategy. That's the bottom line, he's saying. So, Yeah, and this is a discussion that's been going on since the beginning of the program. I sat through the initial legislative session where they created the pre-K program and spoke with experts for years over this very same subject matter. It's a question of quality versus quantity, and there were questions over what credentials the teachers would have, what curriculum the schools would be required to use, and a variety of other factors. And along the way, the ideas of, of requiring things, of especially these private schools, which mainly are the mainstay of the pre-K program, uh, they didn't want to do it. And so they've left the program largely intact. They've made changes around the edges. They've done additional testing to, to determine whether kids are ready. And they've made some 
some um, moves on class sizes and and so forth. But by and large, the same conversation we're having today is the same conversation they were having when crafting the legislation and then when evaluating it five years later and 10 years later and again now. Well, this is one more thing in education that people are saying is underfunded in Florida. You, You can go down the list from teacher salaries to capital funding. Uh, has there ever been an effort to, to better fund uh, pre-K in Florida, or is this a situation where the legislature just keeps saying we don't have the money for that, or we've decided that's what we don't want to spend our money on? I mean, has there ever been a you know a, a groundswell uh, in this direction? Well, it just kind of depends on who's in the legislature more than anything. When Marlene O'Toole was in the House, she really focused a lot on higher on not sorry I'm on. She focused a lot on early education and trying to improve the program. There was discussion then about bringing more money into the system. Not huge amounts, but still more. This year, the Senate proposed, I believe it was an $87 per student increase in pre-K funding, but the House wanted to level fund it. So there's always talk about bringing it up. And it is. it started higher, it dropped down low, and then it started to go back up again incrementally. And, and it's still just way below what the national average is. And there are 44 states and the District of Columbia that are providing pre-K programs. Right. I mean, of course, underlying all of this is pre-K is is, is key. You know, there was a day when uh, kids started their uh, education in kindergarten. But, um, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the, the difference that pre-K makes is, is astounding, not only in uh, kindergarten, uh, but all through your uh, school years, especially elementary years. That's why so many states um, have these programs in the first place. Yeah, especially with all the standards that are in place and the way they do testing. Pre-K is the new kindergarten, kindergarten is the new first grade, and so on and so forth. That's why we have eighth graders taking geometry right now, too, because they've just moved everything back. So now that we've talked about pre-K, we've talked about budgets, let's talk about something else. Diversity. The, the Pinellas County School District has been in a, a years-long debate over the quality of education that's been provided to the black children in the community, and they have just reached an agreement with the school district to change the programs, and you have been following that for a long time, so I'm going to let you talk about it. Well, yes, this, the Pinellas County School District has been uh, engaging uh, for years with uh, two groups, uh, two, two lawsuits actually, one in federal court and one in state court. The one in state court uh, is the one that was uh, settled uh, this week for all intents and purposes, and that was uh, with a group, the uh, plaintiff, uh, the lead plaintiff in that, uh, the only plaintiff right now is a group called COQEBS, and they, that stands for Concerned Organization for the Quality Education of Black Students. And um, uh, COQEBS took over as the lead plaintiff in 2010, uh, there have been some issues uh, since then. Uh, the achievement gap between uh, black and non-black students in Pinellas County has uh, not uh, narrowed. Um, and uh, beginning a, a couple of years ago, the the, um, the the two parties, the district and this group, uh, started talking about how can they change that. Um, for the last year or so, it's been uh, some negotiations about how the district could do a better job uh, uh, educating uh, black kids and also providing information uh, to uh, CoQuebs and to other groups. Um, it's been testy at times, uh, but the uh, this uh, last week the district uh, announced this agreement, and on uh, Tuesday of this week uh, the um, school board ratified uh, this agreement. 
and uh, a new plan called Bridging the Gap. Now, Bridging the Gap has been around for a couple of years, um, it, but it's been um, uh, rewritten and uh, intensified, I guess you could say. Uh, it's a num- it has to do with a number of uh, strategies that the district is going to institute. Um, now, the district has used strategies all along, but the difference here is, is that the, um, uh, the, this, this plan basically um, prods the school district in there, commits the school district, I should say, into just knuckling down and focusing on the achievement gap. Let me ask you, does, does the community actually trust the school district with the past that it's had? I mean, we've looked at the Failure Factories schools, or that's the name of our project anyway, and, and it seemed like the school district had will, almost willfully ignored the community with all the actions that it took. Do they trust them now? Well, Jeff, uh, uh, uh would call itself a representative of the community. They're tied into the uh, uh, community here in St. Petersburg. Uh, but that said, you know, when we initially reported on this, there were many people commenting on Facebook and in the comment section under the stories that um, that they didn't, they did not, in fact, uh, trust the district to um, to really uh, uh, do right by uh, black kids, given all the history. Um, the one of the things is there's a stipulation agreement that goes with this that where the district I found this interesting where the uh, the school district basically has to make a public uh, statement. Uh, that um, it will uh, that that the achievement gap is, that the district has no higher priority than closing the achievement uh, gap, and they want to do it uh, over the next uh, ten years. Uh, and one of the things that makes this agreement different from the past, they say, is is it is all these uh, basically the the, the the architecture of it basically the, it commits the district to um, doing some frequent reporting, uh, quarterly reporting. They have to uh, provide numbers to CokeWebs. It's just basically they have to knuckle down and tackle this, focus on this problem. It's easily it's easy to get um, distracted in education and go on to other initiatives, uh, but they want this focuses the district on the achievement gap as the it's its highest priority. Uh, and they're going to concentrate they, uh, on several uh, strategies. One thing, they a um, couple of things that are in the uh, bridging the gap plan. They want to have a culturally relevant curriculum. Uh, the the district commits to a, a behavior program called positive behavior supports, um, where they they want to get this uh, program in every school to handle discipline uh, actions. They want to they want to uh, res- change their whole. Uh, framework when it comes to uh, discipline uh, practices because uh, black kids tend to get disciplined more uh, in Pinellas and other districts, by the way, uh, than uh, non-black kids. Um, and uh, several other uh, what they call innovative uh, strategies. So, you know, um, is it better than other plans over the past years? And there have been several. Uh, people on both sides of this negotiation, at least, are saying yes, for sure. Uh, just for, because of what I said before, it commits the district to really buckling down on the problem. We're not talking about creating a smaller achievement gap by bringing down other students who are achieving well, are we? No, they 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 definitely say no. They they want to bring they want to have um, minority kids grow at a faster rate uh, than than the rest of the kids and. 
Uh, they want to, like, as I said before, they want this to be re- uh, their efforts to be uh, recorded and reported quarterly so that they keep up with this. And they, uh, if, if the strategy doesn't work, they'll uh, either amend that strategy or, or discard it. You know, they want to they want to find things that are working, and they don't want to keep uh, doing things that aren't working for years and years, which has been the the practice in the past. Uh, the superintendent Mike, the superintendent Mike Grego described it as sort of a mini self-contained accountability system just for the Pinellas School District that goes above and beyond anything that the state is requiring. I guess at this point we just have to say good luck to them and everybody will be watching to hold them accountable, right? Absolutely. This is as I, this is job one for the Pinellas School District. They're going to be having annual reports in addition to those quarterly reports I told you about. So uh, we'll be hearing a lot about it. And uh, we'll see if the district measures up and if they find some strategies that not only can help Pinellas, but uh, the rest of the country, because this is not uh, obviously a problem that's limited to Pinellas County. Now we'll turn to our smaller education matters, little items that are not as massive as the achievement gap and that have still caught our attention. Have there been any of those that caught your attention this week, Tom? I read something uh, that was on the grade book that you referenced on the grade book from the Palm Beach Post this year. Uh, Rebecca Hinson's fifth grade class had a uh, high T uh, this week um, at South Grade Elementary in Lake Worth, Florida, uh, where they uh, uh, Miss Hinson has been giving the students lessons in etiquette all year, uh, how to hold a fork and a knife, how to hold hands in your lap, keep your elbows off the table, etc., she says uh, it's all about showing respect for yourself and others and knowing what to do in special situations. See, they had an event this past week where the the uh, leader of the uh, Guatemalan consulate stopped by, and so did the uh, assistant superintendent and the brand-new principal of the school. And the, one of the things the kids liked most was the toast that you do. And one of the, uh, girl got up, fifth grader got up and said uh, to the principal, toasted the principal and said, you're going to enjoy this year. And I hope you make this school a better place, which I thought was a was a nice moment. And you, Jeff, uh, is there anything that you noticed this week that stood out for you? Well, it was something that didn't stand out, but we had to dig it out a little bit. The ten the tenth grade test that students have to pass in order to graduate from high school it's the reading test, and every year, right at the same time that they release third grade reading test scores, because those are the high stakes tests for those kids, they usually release the 12th graders who are retaking the 10th grade test because they have to pass it. If they're retaking it, they have to pass it in order to graduate. And graduations have been happening and the numbers just weren't coming out. And so I asked where they were because they usually come out together. And when they sent us the spreadsheet of information, it showed that 10% of 17,626 seniors did not, were the ones who passed the test. So that means the remainder of them did not. And so that's 10%. We had 16% passing the 10th grade test as a retake last spring. So it's not looking so good. And they, of course, didn't want to make a big deal about it. They didn't hide it from us. But it's just something that people have to pay attention to. I spoke to a principal at a turnaround elementary school who's struggling to get her school off of that D and F status. And when I mentioned these numbers to her, she just basically shook her head and sighed because she said, you know, if we can't get our job done here, look at what's happening there in those high schools. These kids need some additional help and they probably need it earlier rather than later, which goes back to our conversation on pre-K as well. 
And and this year, the lawmakers did discuss, you know, is there an alternate pathway to a standard diploma for these kids who just can't pass this test but may have every other piece of graduation requirement sealed and done? And that did not get through this year at all. It didn't really get heard. And so once again, we look at these kids at the end of the year where they have the gatekeeper tests. We ask for the information, and what we're seeing is 10% of 12th graders retaking that retaking that reading test are passing. That's a disturbingly low number, and uh, boy, that's uh, they've got to they've got to get their arms around that one. I guess that will be what summer school is for. If the school districts can afford it, the kids do get to take the test as many times as they need to until they pass. And that. Jeff, let me, let, me, let me interrupt you because you didn't know I was going to do this, but I just wanted to uh, mention something here at the end. Uh, you are the uh, you won an award uh, recently in the, in the last few days, the second place in the blog category in the Green Eye Shade um, Award Contest. Uh, it's, it's a pre- prestigious award in journalism for that uh, covers the south southeastern United States. Um, it's uh, you, of course, are. Uh, operate or the main operator of the Gradebook blog here at the Tampa Bay Times, and, and this is uh, a testament to the work you do every day. You've got a wide following across this big state. I just wanted to say, what a great, well-deserved honor, and uh, congratulations! Thank you. I don't know what to say besides thank you, and that's the end of that. That's the end of the podcast for today. Uh, if you want to congratulate all of us, you can do that on our Facebook page, or you can talk about any of these other issues. Facebook page is called Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can check up on the latest news on our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. Now we can call it the award-winning blog, which is kind of cool. And I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. And I'm editor Tom Tobin. Thanks for listening. 